Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I satisfy my curiosity about anything at all, really, and you get to hear about whatever it was that inspired me. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And this week, what inspired me, or episode, was... This bi-week. This, yes, I should start saying bi-week. I yes. think Fortnite just sounds better, though. This so. Fortnite. I was inspired by mythology. It is time for a mythology episode. Excellent. Uh, Greco-Roman mythology, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to ignore some of the meteor myths and settle down into some organic, free-range, plant-based mythology. Meteor. I know, oh, right? Not from the sky like a rock. I know, I meteor. was trying to say meteor. Yeah, like, I get it. Like I was like, trying to uh, say it that way. From a cow. Yeah, like, you know, when something has substance and it's meaty. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I thought it was a pretty good joke, but if you didn't understand which word I'm saying, I thought that was going to be an issue, but I did it okay. anyways. Worked, I did it anyways. It <laughs> um, but it won't just be about myths. There's going to be, like, lots of history and culture stuff mixed in as well. Um, so this is going to be a two-part series about gardens, plants, and mythology. Mm-hmm. And even though I did say Greco-Roman, since the two are just inseparable really intertwined in so many ways right but the primary focus is going to be on roman so later garden cultures and myth yeah um later time period yes okay well teach me something to begin at the beginning it's a good place i'm going to talk about ovid and metamorphoses okay you do that so when i was in university i took uh, you know, Greek and Roman studies class. Um, and we had to read part of the narrative poem Metamorphoses by the famous Roman poet Ovid. Um, and Metamorphoses is a really influential piece. You could argue it's one of the most influential works in the whole Western world. Um, countless works of art have been inspired by the poem, paintings, sculptures, plays, music, books, like... Shakespeare, Chaucer, Dante, Alighieri, they, they were all, um, they all used Ovid's works as an inspiration for um, what they made. Shakespeare has a few plays based on just Ovid's metamorphoses. Um, so you can imagine how cool I found it then when I took a Latin class in university and I was able to read sections of metamorphoses in the original Latin that Ovid actually wrote it in. Um, and I would say... Greco-Roman mythology has been an interest of mine for a while, but that really kind of, um, that made an impression on me. It was really, really cool um, to kind of translate dead ancient (laughs) text from a civilization that has been around for a while. Uh, And so when I was at the library the other day and found out someone had actually written a book about, you know, the different plant species featured in Ovid's Metamorphoses and, you know, the different gods that were in that poem specifically... I definitely needed to read it. Definitely. And it was a really great book. I 100% recommend it to anyone that has any interest in plants or mythology. Um, Annette Gizeki, The Mythology of Plants, is the book. Um, I didn't have room for everything, obviously, and I'm not going to just write her whole book down. That would be a little much, I think. Probably. That's probably not okay. This could just turn into um, a book reading podcast. So, <laughs> right? Book review. Uh, so, yeah, read that book. It's, it's really awesome. And uh, I'd like to just explore Ovid and Metamorphoses a little bit um, further. Today, we actually call him Ovid, but that wasn't his name. He was uh, Publius 
Ovidius Nasso. Oh, it seems easier. Yeah, I, I'm going to stick with it, but that was just, that was his name. He was born March 20th, 43 BCE. So that's one year almost exactly after the, you know, Ides of March. Julius Caesar was murdered, assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, took the opportunity to seize power, of course, um, with the help of the wealthy ruling class. Um, he gradually transformed Rome from a republic governed by, you know, both the elected officials and the wealthy senators that are just appointed because of all their money um, to, you know, turn it into an empire right. controlled by a single individual. An emperor. Um a first citizen, actually, he named himself Rome's first citizen. That sounds very PC for emperor. Uh, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, he, <laughs> Octavian goes on, of course, to adopt the name Augustus. Augustus Caesar, I'm sure. I'm sure you've all, all heard of him. Uh, yeah. Um, and the thing is that to pull off this kind of huge radical change... Um, and have people kind of agree with, with him. He really had to focus on keeping the peace and making everyone's lives stable and prosperous. And so that's what he did. Like he had just ended a he you know terrible civil war in Rome and taken power. And okay, he was showing the the people what he could do for them. They stopped kind of or put a little bit of a pause on their military conquering and just focused on peace at home. Um, and all this peace was really good for Rome, as you might imagine, um, for a while anyways. This time period is known as the Golden Age of Roman literary production. And Ovid, of course, is lucky enough to be growing up right in the middle of it. So he was groomed and educated for a life in politics, though, as per his family's desire. But he always wanted a literary career. Um, so he started writing poetry full time in his 20s. And his work was described as witty, urbane, learned, and uh, largely focused on matters of the heart, which was a really stark contrast to the other big poets at the time, uh, like Virgil and Horace, um, who wrote like lofty and somber and really moralizing, judgmental type of works, all doom and gloom and you must act this way. Anyways, um, to be fair, they, the older poets had lived through this horrible, bloody civil war that sure. Rome had just... Um, just come through and they saw what Octavian had to do basically to take over and to put it, put an end to it. Um, and Ovid had not. So I think they had a different perspective and outlook. Sure. But his work came under scrutiny by the government and he ended up being exiled in 8 CE to the city of Tomai or Tomis. Apparently both. I saw both online. Um, in the easternmost area of the Roman Empire at the time. It was right on the shore of the Black Sea, and it's actually still there. It's the oldest constantly inhabited city in Romania called Constanta now. Cool. So that's where he lived out his final days. He didn't really like his new digs, though. Um, Hmm. He wrote that it was an inhospitable and savage cultural wasteland. That's nice. I think he hated it there. Um, He lived there for about eight more years and died in 17 or 18 CE. Um, why was he exiled? If you have an answer for that, I'm sure historians would love to hear from you. Uh, it's unclear. Ovid wrote the cause of his exile was, and this is in the Latin, Carmen et Error. So they made an error? A poem and an error. Carmen means poem in Latin. Uh, Of course it does. Did you know that? 
I do now. We just want to talk about before then. (laughs) So a poem and an error is why Ovid says he was exiled. Um, And of course, the debate rages on about what he actually meant by that. Uh, But it's possible the poem and the error are the same thing. Ovid wrote a book called Ars Amatoria, so Art of Love. And it was actually devoted to the art of seduction and had sections glorifying, like, adultery and kind of appeared to be mocking a lot of the things Augustus's regime stood for. Um, they were pretty... They're kind of prudes. They stood for family values, piety, and the production of legitimate offspring. And these things were maybe ridiculed a bit in this book, and that may be why I was exiled. Uh, unclear. Okay. Sure. Um, But don't worry, guys, because there's a happy ending to this story that I just learned of. Excellent. The Council of Rome revoked his exile in December 2017. Quote, so he would be able to return freely. Good. So did he go back last year or maybe the year before that? The year before, before the panini. The global panini that I I won't mention the real thing. That hit Italy and the rest of, you know, the world. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a symbolic gesture, but I just find it funny that they actually had to add the part so he'd be able to return freely. Oh, okay. Good job, Ron. He can choose to now. And as for Metamorphoses, it's uh, credited as being written in 8C, same year he was exiled. And historians think it was um, pretty much complete when Ovid left for, for Ptolemy. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Metamorphoses especially has stood the test of time and is, is really fascinated um, history buffs, mythology, literary buffs for a long time, last two millennia, but things could have gone really differently and we would maybe have never seen the work at all. Ovid actually wrote, uh, wrote, wrote. That seems to be the right word. Writes or wrote. Used to Um, write. (laughs) I can't figure it out. I'm going to skip it. uh, He angrily burned the manuscript before leaving Rome, is what he wrote. Hmm. Clearly that wasn't the case, luckily for us. Yeah, we seem to um, know about it, have I, read it. Maybe he was just like letting off steam. You know, people write things that, to get them off their chest and not actually do them. Phew, it was a close one. Um, so in like the format and the content and stuff, Metamorphoses was just unlike anything else. It was 12,000 lines long. Um, it was written in 15 bar- like books or parts or whatever, and that was unusual. No one did that. So like Virgil and Horace, they all made it a point to write even numbers of parts or even numbers of really? books. It was a thing. I don't know why it was a thing. I didn't look into that. But they, they all wrote an even number. And to be different, specifically to set himself apart, Ovid wrote an odd number of books here. Interesting. Okay. Um, and so, you know, the stories within Metamorphoses are a very eclectic mix of like Greek and Roman myths. But they do have, um, you know, a very important thing in common the motif of transformation. Mm-hmm. Metamorphoses. Makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, a human or a divine changing into like an animal or a plant. Um, so all of the stories, they're all mythology. That's what this poem is just, it's just story after story of mythology. And they all have that one common thing that there's a theme of transformation somehow or somewhere. There does seem to be some loose definitions, <laughs> um, but it's okay. I, I would read anything Ovid wrote, so it's okay that he wrote a lot. Um, and so when we're going to talk about mythology in this episode and the next one, we're doing so from within Metamorphoses. That's the version we're using because there's so many versions of the myths, right? 
So it's a Roman version of the myths generally is what we're going to be talking about and Ovid's version. Got it. Yeah. Um, so getting back, you know, to gardens and plants, like I said, I was going to talk about, um, let's start with some history to get a picture of what an ancient Roman garden would have been like. Um, I'll start with my general disclaimer that we don't know much about things because people suck. Um, modern humans first started excavating ancient sites and we were not careful. Um, not only were we not careful, we'd find things and be like, Ooh, I want what? That. Well, not, not even a painting. Who needs another painting of a garden? Let's destroy it. Like just random stuff they didn't feel like was that interesting or that valuable. They would just destroy it. Even if it was really old, like they didn't know anything about it. They don't, it wasn't interesting to them. So they just destroyed okay. it. So people didn't really think when they first started excavating these sites that pictures of gardens or some of these other things were important and gardens themselves weren't important. So a lot of it got destroyed. Um, eh, oh well, we do have a decently clear picture, so it's not, it's not a tragedy. We know a lot, uh, we just don't know everything. Um, just like a common layout of a Roman house. Let's, let's start with that. What is a Roman house like? A Roman, well, villa. They, they, they call them villas. Like a bungalow with, you know, two pillars and a deck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good start. So when you enter the house, you're going to walk through the focus, which is from the Latin for jaws or throat, and you're going to walk into the atrium. These days we say atrium. Uh, yes. Atrium is Latin for entry hall. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> but these days we just say um, atrium. And, I mean, the other place you might have heard the word atrium is the heart, mm-hmm. the chamber through which the blood first enters the heart. The entry hall, if you may, of the heart. That's why it's called that, by the way. It's all tracks. Um, so the atrium would have been open and, and filled with light, and it would have an impluvium. That's how you say it in Latin. Impluvium. Oh, I thought you were just making up a word, but that's okay. Keep going. Impluvium. Because the V is said like a W, which sounds funny to say, but that's yeah. right. Very um, entertaining. <laughs> it would have an impluvium in the center for, um, like, it caught rainwater, basically. It was a big rainwater basin fountain. Good birthday. Yeah, mm, sure. The the atrium would have been surrounded by other rooms like um, cubicula, which are the bedrooms, or tablinum, which is the office. Okay. And when you enter the house, the layout is like a straight line from the focus to the atrium and then the tablinum and then the garden. And you'd be able to see the garden from the door. Like, that was a big deal. Okay. Um. The garden was the centerpiece. It was what you showed off to people. You want them to see it the second they come in. And it would have been lined, the garden itself would have been lined with like these beautiful covered walkways that are like lined with columns. And that's called a peristyle. And around the peristyle were rooms for relaxing and dining and entertaining. Like they open up upon the garden, I assume, or? Like, yes, yes. Like they, oh, yes, yeah. correct, yeah. Um, and, and now the peristyle wasn't always a feature of Italian architecture. This is a Greek thing. This is something that the Romans borrowed from the Greeks. Um, the Greeks also kind of inspired Roman architecture, um, because the Greeks always had a courtyard in the middle of their houses. Yes. And, um, the Romans didn't, didn't have this garden in all their houses. And then they kind of, you know, they saw the Greeks courtyard in the house and they're like, that's cool. Let's do that. Except for what the Romans did was they planted... Uh, a garden 
and had the peristyle walkways, whereas the Greeks' peristyle walkways were all, like pretty much just in public parks. It wasn't just something in your house. And a Greek courtyard in their house would not have been planted. They don't plant things there. Okay. Um, so uh, the other thing is that the Romans used to have their gardens at the rear of the house. So once they saw the Greek courtyard thing, then they moved those to the center, did the peristyles. It was all, it was pretty nice. Um, when the Romans and Greeks started really heavily interacting in like the late third century BCE, that kind of time, um, it is really when things started to change. Um, the other thing about the Greeks is that they didn't really garden the way that we're thinking of the term and the way the Romans did. Um, they, they had their orchards and vineyards and market gardens and kitchen gardens and, but they were just for growing food. That's all okay. they were. Yeah. They're utilitarian. They didn't really care much about how they looked. Nothing else. Romans gardened in a symbolic and beautiful way. They, they made it a point of pride to have a beautiful, fragrant, luxurious garden. Um, but they did want them to be both productive and ornamental. Like they weren't so just they did doing still it to grow, look like, nice. Food and right. Okay. But they wanted that balance there. They needed them to also be beautiful. Right. Um, Greeks didn't also have uh, decor themed around gardens and plants and stuff. So um, once the Romans took over, then we start to see art and sculpture and painting about gardens and about plants and trees. Um, which, which, like I said before, those types of paintings were actually helpful for scientists and the like, um, trying to figure out what some things might have looked like. Um, so the fact that the Greeks didn't really do that is somewhat of a a clue. But yeah, it's a clue. It wasn't important to them, right? Yeah. Um, so in the Roman world, um, something that they would do is that if a garden was like really small or by a wall, they like use optical illusion to kind of expand the space, they would paint a garden on the wall or, you know, garden murals, that kind of thing. Um, So along with all that art, we do have other evidence like carbonized seeds and preserved like root cavities and stuff like that, especially from, for example, Pompeii. A lot of our evidence has come from Pompeii because things were so well preserved. Um, because they're basically just instantly buried by ash and instantly right. covered by ash and lava and all that from Vesuvius's yeah massive eruption. So the things that were covered in ash survived really well mm-hmm. and were carbonized. Yeah, um, which by the way was in 79 CE. Vesuvius erupted on Pompeii and almost instantaneously <laughs> ended that city. Um, yeah. So all you know, all the scientific and archaeological evidence has really painted a picture of gardens that were lushly planted with herbs, flowers, trees, shrubs. Some plants were native, some were imported, some were purely ornamental, but most were also edible or medicinal. At least theorized to be. At least they thought they were medicinal. Let's go with that. What, what did Pliny say? Oh, uh, well, he's in this episode. Okay. Well, how would you think I would do an episode about Greco-Roman history and not have Pliny the Elder? I, I, pardon me, yeah. I yes, you'll have to thinking. pardon Everett. Listeners, we'll get to Pliny. He's jumping the gun a bit. Okay. Um, Roman garden decor, they had, like, fountains, pools, fish ponds, aviaries, towers, art everywhere, statues, frescoes, murals... Like, all with the same types of things. Like, athletes and philosophers, gods, goddesses, and other mythological characters, right? Sure. 
Um, and as the Romans expanded their conquering and exploring, it started, it's more and more fashionable to decorate with foreign, like, exotic things, like the right. Babylonian hanging gardens and even Persian-style hunting parks known as paradisois. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And, well, because you know the Romans conquered the Persian or like, the... Yeah. Yeah, so... They definitely that, that was a big that was a big empire. They had a lot of different cultural elements going on with them, so kind of they took a lot from it. Yeah. Um, if if you like me are wondering how big these gardens have to be to have lots of these types of things in them, like, um, well, I mean the garden is going to take up anywhere from one third to two thirds of the interior space of the villa. Yeah. Okay, but I would still think for some of those things you need to. An acre, maybe. Yeah, and? Okay, got it. I mean, okay. So, all this ostentatiousness, of course, didn't develop in a vacuum, right? So, one of the biggest influences on the Romans when it came to their villa design was the estates of the former ruling class under Alexander the Great. Sure. So, Alexander the Great, as you know, amassed a huge empire starting in 336 BCE which incorporated almost all of ancient Greece and the Asian Persian Empire. So, you know, Asian Minor, Egypt, Syria. Um, and it was one of Alexander the Great's goals to mix the Greek culture with these other nations he conquered. Okay. He didn't want to annihilate the culture. He wanted to just mix it all in. Um, so the ruling classes there like had palaces with Greek and Persian and Mesopotamian, Egyptian influences. Um, one example is the Great Palace built in Alexandria by the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt. So this palace took up one quarter of the city of Alexandria. Okay. By area. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, of course, the complex itself had a palace, but it also had multiple parks, a theater, a palestra, which was an area for wrestling and boxing, a gymnasium, multiple temples, botanical gardens, and a zoo. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Well, I mean, it's taking up a quarter of the city, so you I need mean, some of those things. I mean, I don't know if the public can actually use them. <laughs> this is just for the royals. Well, I understand that the public may not be using them. I'm just saying, if you're going to take up a quarter of the city, you better put some things in there. I guess. Um, so, the Romans. Um being an extremely materialistic and status-seeking culture. Mm -hmm. is not a judgment. That is just a fact. That's that's how they yeah. were. Um, they started trying to outdo each other in respect to their villas. It wasn't uncommon, of course, for the rich to own multiple villas. Yeah. Uh, the wealthy made it, you know, keeping up with the Joneses style contest to decorate their villas with the biggest, best ideas, the, you know, the right art and makes you appear smart and educated and exotic landscapes uh, made them appear cultured and highly statured, you know, all that stuff. Sure. Um, but the Romans really also somehow valued their agrarian ancestry a little bit. Like it was like seen as virtuous to remember and honor your ancestors by not straying too far from the agrarian lifestyle. So they were like, oh, well, that's okay. As long as our crazy, luxurious gardens grow food, then we mm. won't be angry that well. bad. We won't be that far off. And so that's kind of one of the big reasons that they kept it functional as well as beautiful. Sure. Um, they put things in like orchards, vineyards, fisheries, oyster beds, rabbit farms, all the things you normally have in a garden. Well, I mean, 
we have all those things in our garden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to come have some oysters later. Totally in our garden right now. Totally. Right beside our rabbit farm. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's dig a little more specifically, though, into the mythological content of the gardens. That's the good stuff, right? So one of the gods most frequently found in a Roman garden was Venus, which Aphrodite in the Greek. I'm going to try to say both versions in case people are more familiar with the Greek, but I'll mostly be using Roman names as I continue through things. Um, You know, Ovid. Yeah. So Venus, the goddess of love, erotic desire... The Romans believed she was a source of fertility and life in humans, animals, and plants, so it's not surprising that she was a popular, you know, garden feature. Of course. Representations of her birth from the sea foam were common to find, as well as of her with her son Cupid, Eros in Greek, mm-hmm. um, and her lover Mars, who is Ares. Yep. Uh, fun fact, Mars was an Italian god of agriculture. Italian. Aries is Greek. Then the Romans were like, what if we mush them together? Yeah, right. So, in in Greek mythology, Aries was just the god of war. In Roman mythology, he was the god of war and also the god of agriculture because of that Italian god of agriculture. And so that's another reason you'd find Mars in a Roman garden. Okay, because now he has a connection to the, the land as and, well and the plants. As Venus. And, right, yes. Okay. So part of Venus's origin story is when she emerged from the waves of the sea. Um, here, I'm going to quote Ovid here. Roses sprung from the sand, suffusing the earth with color. And before the graces arrived to clothe the newly born goddess in robes of divine splendor, she hid her nakedness behind a myrtle bush. A myrtle bush. So rose and myrtle were said to be sacred to Venus. So they were found planted with her iconography in gardens. Mm-hmm. They were also planted around her temples and worn in garlands by her worshippers. Um, associated with Venus was the mortal Adonis. Her own child, Cupid, accidentally grazed her with one of his arrows, you see, when he was trying to give her a kiss. And the next person she laid her eyes on was Adonis. So she falls madly deeply in love with him. The son of Mira and... Mira's father, Cinerus, Adonis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was said to be one of the most beautiful mortals to have ever walked the earth, which is a connotation that the, the word Adonis carries in the present day. Um, yeah, we'll get to that story next week, okay. unfortunately. Um, Mira has some other... Mira's got some stuff going on. Uh, Venus just abandons her previous life, all her other sexual partners, to completely devote herself to Adonis and the life with him in the woods, as he was quite an avid hunter. Um, She, quote, even forgoes the heavens, preferring Adonis to heaven. Cute. However, she knows he's mortal, and she was really terrified of losing him in a hunting accident. Sure. So she warns him about the, you know, mighty beasts in the forest and tells him how dangerous the lions are and how dangerous the wild boars are. And then off she flies through the ether to Cyprus and leaves him to go hunt. But, Ovid says, manly virtue was incompatible with such warnings. Yeah, I was going to say, so let me guess that heeds him further on into the hunt. Well, Yeah. But I want to I want to say Ovid just points out how toxic masculinity just got this guy killed. Yeah. Manly virtue was incompatible with such warning. Adonis was too arrogant to think he'd ever be harmed. So shockingly, he is then immediately killed by a wild boar. 
Um, Venus hears his cries while she's flying in her chariot pulled by swans, by the way. Um, but her return's too late, and she finds him dead in a big pool of his own blood. And now I will read from Ovid. She sprinkled a perfumed nectar on the blood, which swelled up upon contact like translucent bubbles rising, rising in a tawny sky. Not yet an hour later, a flower bloomed there, the very color of blood, and like the flowers, borne by the pomegranate that conceals its seeds beneath a tough rind. Yet enjoyment of the bloom is but brief, for the flower is ephemeral, and, owing to its delicacy, prone to collapse through being shaken by the very winds that give it its name. End quote. <laughs> um, this, this is the poppy anemone. Okay. Anemone. That word is tongue twister, man, on a podcast. Ugh. Or call, it's called the Greek windflower, less of a tongue twister. It's got red petals, the color of Adonis's blood, as you heard Ovid say. Uh, Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder <gasps> will make an appearance now to tell us that the flower never opens except when the wind is blowing. Thus the name anemone, which is literally windflower in Greek. Cool. It also means daughter of the wind because there's some like god minor goddesses called anemone. Anyways. We'll just ignore that. Um, of course, Pliny the Elder also thought you could use poppy anemones. To? What is he going to cure? Well, to dispel fever. Okay. Okay. But only if you gather it as soon as it appears, say the right words, some kind of magic spell, I don't know, while collecting it, and keep it wrapped up in a red cloth hidden from the sun. Then you can wrap the red cloth on the ill person and fever gone. Works like a charm every time. Yeah. Oh, oh, Pliny. I cannot wait to do an episode devoted to the wacky medical cures of Pliny the Elder. And mm -hmm. we will get there. I, uh, I'm so excited for it. And even though he was immortal, the Greeks actually celebrated Adonis like he was a god. They had a two-day festival for him called the Adonia, where they mourned the passing of, him, like, of Adonis and they celebrated his metamorphosis by planting Adonis gardens, which were like pots or baskets where they plant a few seeds from a grain or vegetable. Then the woman would carry them up to the rooftops where they are going to quickly sprout. And then just as quickly they're going to wither because it's hot in the Greek sun and they're not going to water them. So this kind of represents that short bloom and sure. um, of, of Adonis. So another popular goddess to be represented in Roman gardens was Juno. Hera in the, in the Greek mythology, Hera. Juno was the queen goddess, wife of Jupiter slash Zeus. Yeah. She was the goddess of women, ironically, because she wasn't nice to women. No, Anyways, not at women, all. marriage, family, and childbirth. Uh, we know that Juno originated from the Greek Hera, and scholars think Hera originated with an older deity that was responsible for the fertility of the whole earth. And um, so the Romans actually associated Juno with fertility as well, um, both of people and the plants. Okay. So she, you know, is in gardens. This makes sense. Totally. Um, she was also known for something else. Um, and I think you probably know this one, Everett. If there was, if there was one thing about Juno that sticks out to you about her character and things that she does. Well, I would say how much she just loved and adored Heracles. Oh. Just doted upon him and made his life so easy. Once again, you're jumping ahead. Okay. <laughs> I was just playing on her vindictive nature towards the offspring of Jupiter with other women. Not no. necessarily getting to the Hercules. We'll get to Hercules soon. It's where I was going with this. Everett just reads my mind, apparently. That's what happens when you get married to someone. That's exactly Vulcan what happens. Vulcan mind meld and uh -huh. then, you know. 
Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But Good. yeah, she's, uh, she's very well known for... Treating other women really well, too. Terrible, terrible person to anyone born of Jupiter and another woman. I mean, and also that woman. She'll exactly. treat them real terrible, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, in ancient Greek and Roman culture, the apple was a fruit that symbolized fertility. As well as the pomegranate. I'll probably talk about pomegranate next week. See, I'm far familiar with the pomegranate being that, that symbol. Uh, yes, and pomegranate was in other cultures, like the ancient Ayurvedic culture as well. But yeah. a lot of cultures have the pomegranate as a fertility. Um, we'll, later, we'll find out why that might be as well. So in myth, the earth goddess Gaia created the apple tree, and of course the apple as well, as a wedding gift for Juno. So the apple okay. became a sacred symbol of Juno. Sure. This makes sense. Ever do you know where that first ever apple tree that Gaia made for Juno is? Was? Planted? At? That's okay. We'll get there later. Is it by the golden fleece? We'll get there later. Wrong golden. Um, so other plants sacred to Juno that you might find in a Roman garden are the pomegranate, you know, again, for the fertility thing. Makes sense. And um, the vitex. And what is a vitex? I can see you about to ask me that because I did not know what that was. It's not a um, Viking of some sort. It's a flowering tree and it's commonly called monk's pepper or even more commonly chaste tree or chaste berry, which confuses me. Because that seems like the opposite of fertility, but okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the opposite of fertility is infertility, not choosing to not have intercourse. But it just seems like an odd association. Sounds like something <laughs> Mr. Graham of Graham Crackers would go for. Because? Because he thought you should live a chaste life oh, without the, any flavor. I understand, yes. Just like Kellogg, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually an episode I've been considering as well. All these weird dudes and their weird Puritan diets that had somehow linked food to sin. Anyways. Vulcan mind meld. Speaking of apples, it should be noted that the Greeks and the Romans sometimes used the word apple to describe a range of fleshy fruits, including the pomegranate and quince. And so we don't really know what they were ever talking about for sure, specifically. Okay. So that's, that's, actually an explanation some historians have used about how a lot of these things became linked to fertility. They had seeds inside of them, but like all fruits do. So it's just these fleshy fruits. They kind of just like didn't differentiate. And now we don't know what they were talking about. Okay. Cool story, right? Yeah. Um, did you know that it wasn't an apple in the Garden of Eden? Anyways. I have heard that. Yeah. Let's, let's, that's really off topic. I mean, apples are the topic, so it's only a little bit off topic. In Greece... Apples were used as wedding gifts and engagement presents. For the Romans, apples were served to finish a banquet. And there are Roman recipes that have been preserved for um, a type of pork and apple mincemeat dish. Cool. And honey-preserved apples. Both of those sound good. Yeah. So in Greco-Roman mythology, the most infamous apple, uh, according to the author of the Mythology of Plants, and I tend to agree with her, is the golden apple with the words for the fairest inscribed on it. The goddess of strife, Discordia, heiress in the Greek. Uh, she brings this as a wedding present for Thetis and Peleus, who are the future parents of Achilles. Now you see, she crashes the wedding to get some revenge because she's actually the only god that wasn't invited. Um, she brought the present knowing it was going to stir up a whole lot of trouble. Yes. 
Minerva, who is Athena, Venus, who is Aphrodite, and Juno, who is Hera. They all, all fight over the apple. They yeah. all think it should be theirs and they all want it. So to solve this problem, they appoint the handsomest of mortal men to judge which goddess deserves the apple. Um, this man, Paris, does not pick which goddess deserves the apple and just picks which goddess bribes him the best. And that was Venus. And her bribe was the most beautiful woman in the world. Mm-hmm. And thus began the Trojan War. That one's a great story. I love that one. Another, I know. I don't have time to really tell them in detail, but they're all yeah. pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, another golden apple myth found in Metamorphoses is about Atalanta and Hippomenes. Now, Atalanta was one of the most badass females in all of, like, mortal women mythology. She was pretty cool. Um, And Ovid wrote this story with Venus as the narrator of the story. Okay. Which is also super cool. Um, It works really well within the story. And and Venus saying, oh, yes, I did take pity or I heard his call. Anyway, it's it's really well done. I really love this one. Um, Atalanta, like I said, was a mortal woman. She was mm-hmm. famous for hunting, beauty, and running really fast. She consulted an oracle about a husband, and she was told, quote, Atalanta, you have no need of a husband. Hasten from the bods of marriage. Yet you will not escape, and though still alive, you will lose your spirit, the essence of your being. Which is pretty dang dark, if you ask me. So she didn't want to get married. No. Shockingly. She hid in a forest. Um, didn't really matter. Men still came to court her because of her great beauty. Um, she told them that no one will possess me who has not first outrun me. She promised to marry anyone who would beat her in a foot race. And if they lost, penalty was death. Pretty standard for that time. Somewhat surprisingly, every one of the men were willing to make this bet. Uh, again, because of her great beauty. So here she is defeating man after man and suitor after suitor. And this whole time there's been a young man watching. Hippomenes. Great-grandson of Neptune. And first he made fun of all the guys for losing. I mean, kind of seems mean because they're about to die, but whatever. Yeah, he has a pretty short window to get those, you know, japes in. And then, but then he made fun of them for even doing it in the first place. Like, what kind of self-esteem do you have to make a bet for your life? Like, she can't be so good... Anyway, and then she takes off her cloak and he is stunned by her beauty and he's so in love instantly. But then he sees her running, which I don't understand because it says he's been watching this whole time, but whatever. He sees her running and it's just the most beautiful and trancing thing he's ever seen and he must have her. So he asks her for a race. But mm, great grandson of Neptune that he is, he, he pleads to Venus that this is all her fault. She clearly made him fall in love because she's Venus. So she, she, she's got to help him now. Of course. Venus um, admits she was moved by this plea. And uh, she helps Hippomenes by giving him three golden apples. Mm-hmm. So as they race, he throws these apples off course. She's distracted by the apples and keeps going off course to chase them. Yeah, they're so shiny. Well, but in the poem, Venus does admit to compelling her to need to go pick yeah. them up. So it's not like she's just some dumb woman that's distracted by a shiny object. I, I do remember that part, yeah. I hope. <laughs> and yeah, okay, in the end, Hippomenes gets the girl. They mm-hmm. get married. Wasn't a happy ending, though. Not as much. <laughs> so according to Ovid, Hippomenes wasn't grateful enough for Venus's help. He didn't offer her enough uh-huh. thanks or 
sacrifice, like whatever he was supposed to do. Praise. I don't know. So she makes him mad and crazy and drives him and Alanda to have sex in the temple of another goddess who gets all offended and turns them into lions. The end. The, now I'm trying to remember. That's not the basis of the Nibian, Nibian line with Heracles, Nib- right? Are Nib- you saying Namibian? Namib- Namibian? No, I don't. I don't, an enemy? I don't think. I don't think it's about the Namibian line. Okay. I don't remember with I don't remember which myth ends with the creation of that. Okay, line. don't look at my screen. Okay, I won't look at your screen. It's time for you to make a guess of of something. Oh boy, are you excited? Okay, the most popular figure, god, the most popular god figure found in Roman gardens. I'll give you three guesses, and it does make sense. Like you know what he's got. Like it makes sense. So you get three guesses, and I think you have a chance here. I'm gonna guess. Uh, let's see. I mean, one of the big ones we haven't even talked about yet. I guess Heracles, Hercules. No. Okay. I don't think Poseidon makes sense. I'm not gonna say that one. Okay. Uh, what's the one with the wine? It's not Demetrius. It's. Uh, Which is funny you said that because. I thought you would maybe have guessed Demeter, who is a goddess Demeter. of agriculture. But you're right. It is the one with the wine. Dionysus. Dionysus. There you who go. Who in Roman is called... Uh, I don't recall. Bacchus. Bacchus. Okay. Yep. Okay. So Bacchus. He is, among other things, the god of vegetation, fruits, the grape harvest, and orchards. Yeah. Um, so those are all the relevant things that he's god of, at least. Um, he's also the god of wine and winemaking. Um, fertility, insanity, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, festivity, and theater. And most most importantly, wine <laughs> is what I have heard from that one multiple times. <laughs> yes and no. I learned a new thing about Bacchus I will tell you about. So Take it away. <laughs> I mean, I'll get to that part in a few sentences, but for now... Bacchus had a huge and devout following in the ancient Greco-Roman world. There were many, many cults dedicated to um, the Bacchic or Dionysian mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, wine played an important role in Greek and Roman culture, and the Greek Dionysian cults were the main religious group focused on drinking wine. Uh, wine was seen as a gift of Bacchus and even a symbolic incarnation of him on earth, blood of Christ. Dionysus is also being compared to Jesus, by the way. Dionysus is the Jesus of... Greek and Roman mythology. Um, in Roman gardens, then, you could plant grapevines to honor Bacchus, or grapes or vines or leaves, you could paint them somewhere, yep. uh, carve them on furniture even. Um, so, speaking of wine and things I didn't know about Bacchus, he's actually been pretty misrepresented in the post-classical era. So I'd always had this image of like this hard party or who was drunk a lot, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's just, like, wrong. That's just slanderous and oh, probably boy. pushed by a certain church or place that wants to make imbibing alcohol seem... Um, unvirtuous. Unvirtuous. Yes, sinful. exactly. Yeah. So he actually didn't approve of overindulgence. His religion focused on the correct consumption of wine, which includes the correct amount, um, teaching that wine could ease suffering and bring joy... But if used incorrectly, inspire, you know, madness, drunkenness. If you use it correctly, though, you could achieve a, quote, divine madness, which was different from drunkenness and was okay. Perfect. Anyways, basically, he's just been maligned 
Sure. And, and, and he is not into drunks, just really likes wines and thinks they're delicious. Okay. Performance art was also pretty vital to his religion. The ancient Greek Dionysian festivals actually led to the invention of theater. This is, this is how theater was invented. Um, since theater was an art form created to honor Bacchus, it was common to see the classic comic or tragic masks in Roman gardens as a symbol of Bacchus. So you know what I'm talking about? The weird theater masks that have yeah. the weird faces? Okay. Um, so there's, there's two. The comedy mask is known as Thalia, who is the muse of comedy. Makes sense. The tragedy mask is known as Melpomene. Melpomene? Melpomene, I've written in my notes. Who okay. is the muse of tragedy? So the muses, by the way, they have the same names in Greek and Roman. That one, I don't have to remember two names. Okay. And same origin story, that they were the daughters of Jupiter slash Zeus. And Mnemosyne, who is the personification of memory. Oh, I don't remember that. But cool. Yeah. Ivy could also be planted in Roman gardens to represent Bacchus. Uh, it's an evergreen plant, which symbolizes eternal life in the ancient Roman culture. So the cult of Bacchus was also known as the cult of souls. Um, Bacchus acted as a like kind of divine medium between the living and the dead. Sure. And he associated, um, he's also associated with life-giving fluids. The ancients decided there were life-giving fluids, wine, milk, and honey. One of these, to me, doesn't seem like a fluid. And uh, I was actually kind of questioning their priorities since I didn't see water on that list of life-giving fluids. But, Meh. oh, well. Bacchus is often described and depicted as carrying something called a thyrsus. Th oh, my God. Every time that word gets me, I keep wanting to say thrysis. Thyrsus. Okay. Um, wound with ivy and dripping with honey. So a thyrsus is a staff of giant fennel. Odd. Okay. Um, that Bacchus used as a weapon against people that were opposed to his cult or, you know, his teachings. Um, so the image, uh, like, or representation of Bacchus and all those other symbols I told you about were meant, you know, to honor him. But also it was just, it just more generally symbolized good spirits and merriment. If people want to decorate their gardens for good times, then they just kind of used those symbols. Um, like in myth, Bacchus is often accompanied by nymphs and um, satyrs. Yeah. And so if those characters, regardless of if Bacchus was there, those characters in a garden also came to just symbolize just good times and merriment. Um, there's a really cool story, actually, about uh, Bacchus and some pirates in Metamorphoses. Uh, we just don't have time for it this this episode. I'm going to do it next time, I promise, because pirates. Excellent. Yeah. Arr. <laughs> And as you so um, helpfully pointed out a little while ago, heroes, mythological heroes, were also, you know, popular in Roman gardens. Sure. Um, take Hercules, who was kind of a god and a hero, like demigod. Anyways. Yeah, right. Um, so Hercules is Roman. Heracles yes. is Greek. The Disney movie got that one. I mean, the Disney movie just kind of put all random hero stuff into one movie and said it was all Hercules, but yeah, I, I mean, love that were, movie so much, so we're just not going to talk about that. There were definitely other heroes, and if I remember correctly, even gods rolled into Yeah, and in Hercules. that movie, Hera loved him and was his mother. So, you know, yeah, there were some things yeah. that got wrong. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But did you know that the baby was not called Hercules nor Heracles when he was born? Correct. Um, he, going back to the original Greek myth, because the only way that makes sense is in the Greek myth, so Quickly, we're going to be in Greek mode. Um, he was given the name 
Alcius, baby Alcius. And this was actually the name of his step-grandfather. That's a, that's a whole other story. Uh -huh. um, so he took on the name Heracles, meaning glory of Hera, later in his life. And it was used, that name was used to kind of signify that he would become famous through his interactions with Hera. Correct. Um, adversarial as, as a say, relationship not, might not be. Not so much to the pleasure of Hera, but... Yeah, glory of Hera didn't... Yeah, it just pretty much meant that through her, he would become famous. Um, he was born to the mortals Alchemini and Amphitryon, um, or that's what they thought. <laughs> In reality, uh, I mean, not reality, mythology, but like in the story, <laughs> yeah. Jupiter slash Zeus wanted to get it on with yet another mortal woman and, and Gasp. since when does he ask for consent so instead he disguises himself as Amphitryon and tricks Alchemini into having sex with him by pretending he came home from war early and then later that night the real Amphitryon came home from war for real and also impregnates Alchemini mm -hmm. so she gives birth to twins correct Alcius and Iphicles which whose name is supposed to Hercules and Iphicles you know, that sounds good. Heracles and Iphicles. But Alcius and Iphicles doesn't have the same yeah, name to it. I it think doesn't. they added that Iphicles part after they decided his name was different. But whatever. I suspect so, yeah. <laughs> whatever, with old stuff. So anyways, you know, one's a demigod, one's a mortal. Mm -hmm. But uh, the birth didn't go smoothly. No. Um, Juno slash Hera. I mean, this is a whole story we don't it's have time lot, yeah. for. Mm -hmm. So to summarize, Juno slash Hera sends, I mean, depending on the versions we're talking about, which is a goddess, whatever, yep. to prevent the birth. Yes. Um, but eventually they are tricked by Alchemini's servants and she's able to give birth to the twins. Um, so next Juno sends two snakes to kill, well, serpents, to kill Her uh, Hercules. Let's go with him. While they sleep, basically. Hercules um, in his cradle, but of course Hercules strangles him. Mm -hmm. There are versions of the myth that say next Alchemini, you know, so terrified of Juno that she abandons the baby in the woods. This yeah. is a really popular motif in Greek and Roman myth called exposing the baby. Yeah. Don't worry, they never once die of exposure. No. Literally the, every the trope time. is... It's a trope yeah. for someone to save them, find them and save them. So who saves him and who finds him? Minerva. Athena. Minerva finds him. His half-sister, by the way. And, uh, and she leaves the baby with Juno. Just... Big white saying, just, uh, this is an orphan child I found in the woods. Here, nurse Nothing him. special. He's yeah. hungry. Nurse him. So, of course, then Hera, Juno, feeds Hercules from her own breast milk. Mm -hmm. um, until he bites her nipple, causing her to pull away and spraying her goddess milk all over the cosmos. And that's how the Milky Way was created. Correct. According to the Greeks. No, 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 it's canon. <laughs> Physicists, take note. Um, so then Minerva, you know, brings the baby back to Alchemini and Amphitryon to raise. Uh, only now he's extra strong because demigod plus divine breast milk. So he's... It's a good combo. Yeah, she she really helped him there. And remember that part earlier where Everett told you about how Juno was especially known for being mean to Hercules? Um, <laughs> that ruined the rest of my paragraphs. So I'm not going to say all that clever things I was going to say, but that's okay. You can tell me uh, later. <laughs> I was just going to say she dedicated quite a lot of her time and energy to destroying him, but that I honestly didn't know where she found the time to do that since Jupiter had so many other offspring with other women to destroy. 
Mm. I don't know why he was so special. That's the thing, you know? Um, anyways, plants. We're going we're gonna to get to the plant thing. This is about plants, guys. This is about plants. <laughs> Hercules in Roman gardens was represented by... Any guesses? Do you know this? Actually, I don't know this. No. Get this. It's the apple. <laughs> Just like Juno. She would have loved that. Yeah, she, wow. She would hate that. Um, and ironically, it's all her fault in the first place, obviously. Um, the apple connection comes up in Hercules' labors. When he I, had... Yes. Which he had to do uh-huh. to repent for the sin of slaughtering his wife, Megara, and their children. Yeah. But wait. That's the ending to Hercules that? that Disney did not want you to know about. It's not the ending. That's like the middle. The I, middle beginning. I, Okay, fair enough. Yeah. That's not the end of Hercules' life, I'm just saying. That's that's the end of his story with Megara, which was the movie. Anyways, whatever. Yeah, okay. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so, But the movie... Never mind. Because they do labor during the movie, but then it doesn't happen until that. Yeah. Okay, go for it. The movie whatever. is in no whatever. way accurate to anything. Let's uh-uh. not worry about it, okay? All right. Um, <laughs> so, the apple thing is in the labors. Yes. The labors he had to do for slaughtering his wife and his children. But why the heck would he have suddenly murder his whole family? Well, that's because Juno drove him to insanity. Yep. So she did it. It's her fault. And that's why he's with the apple. So, um. Well, and then she also helps pick what his labor should be. Basically, she just. But these were the extra, this was the extra labor. There was like two extra ones because it was 10. And then like the, the king that had set the labors for Hercules added two more at the end. So I don't think she stuff. had. Yeah. I don't think she set him this one because oh, she right. would not have wanted him to do this. Okay. The 12th labor. Yeah. Retrieve three garden apples from the garden of the Hesper- Hesperides. That's how you say it. I was going to say Hesperides. Hesperides. So the Hesperides were nymphs that tended this golden apple tree. Yep. The first ever apple tree given to Juno by Gaia for her wedding. So no, I don't think she chose to have him go steal her apples from her precious tree. Okay. Or did she? I kind of feel like she did. Really? Okay, well, there's because something she knew I, I how don't... Well guard, because she tried to convince the king to send him on all the things that would defeat him. And one of the things that she knew was that the garden was, like, basically well defended. Right. Um, there's a serpent that Hercules, Hercules, Hercules defeats, and also Atlas just gets the apple for him because he tricks him, but... Well, he holds up the... But, but, that's why the apple was associated with Her- uh, Hercules. And, oh my gosh, the Greek and Roman, I'm getting so confused. Yeah. Um, but there's another plant associated with Hercules as well. That comes out of the 12 labors too. Okay. And this is from the 11th labor. A dandelion. Where Hercules had to capture Cerberus, mm-hmm. the three-headed canine guardian of the underworld. Um, every source has a completely different method of capture. But let's go with Ovid, who tells us that Hercules uses adamant chains, which are basically diamond chains, um, Mm. as a leash. Yeah. Adamant was... Diamond. I thought that was supposed to be stronger than diamond. Mm. Like a mythological... I don't know. I googled it. It just said diamond or like diamond. So we're going to go with diamond or diamond-like. Yeah, for some reason I thought it had a, like, uh, godly element to it that increased its strength beyond if that. If you but feel so inclined, you could learn that fact for us. And, probably. And, and tell us. Okay. 
you could do that right now on the Google, or you could do that later and tell us next next time. That's probably more likely. Okay, so he just does these chains as a leash and just drags them along because he's pretty strong. There's really nothing Cerberus can do about this. Um, so Ovid goes on to tell us that, quote, the foam and slobber from the hellhound's mouth fell on the soil, producing aconite, a suitably toxic plant. Suitably toxic for what? I don't know. Um, more common names for aconite, at least these days, because they still do use that name, are monkshood and wolfsbane. Yeah. Which I've heard of in Harry Potter, of course. Um, <laughs> um, but Roman and Greek mythology does differ here, just as a point. Greek mythology says that Hecate, who is a very powerful witch, very powerful, mm-hmm. um, created aconite. Okay. And fun fact about aconite, it was the poison that Medea slipped into Theseus's wine to try to kill him. Which she did not. That was an attempt that did not work out. Yeah. But now I'm afraid we've run out of time for any more stories, unfortunately. Okay. I, of course, am going to tell all about Bacchus and pirates. And I'll tell you about Narcissus and Echo. And about Mm. the unfortunate and very odd Mira story. Narcissus um, and Echo is a great one too. Actually, those are all. I don't know the pirate one. I don't think, but I I the have other ones. I have quite a few because I'm going to keep the level of detail a little bit less intense so that okay. we can just tell more stories about things and people and creatures turning into plants. Perfect. That's kind of what next week's going to be about turning like into plants. <laughs> so be sure to check back in two weeks if you want to hear more about gardens and plants and ancient Greek Roman world, and you want to just hear a bunch of weird stories that'd be really cool uh thank you so much for listening to this episode of teach me something once again i'm melissa and i'm everett and i hope you learned something new